The passage that we're looking at this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. And you'll find um, the Bible reading on the screen and in your leaflet. And if you picked up a blue Bible on your way in, you'll find it on page 847. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. It's great to be with you again today and for the next, uh, or for today and next week. Good to be uh, catching up with you. And we're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapters 13 and 14, or sections that, that come from that. First of all, though, I want to read to you from uh, an Old Testament book, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a wisdom book, and I think it, it contains some interesting and challenging statements. But let me just read out two verses that I think are quite provocative. It's Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 and 2. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Okay, you find that strange? If I gave you the choice, you know, you could go to a wedding and the reception that follows or a funeral and the wake that's after that, which one would you prefer to go to? I don't know. I don't have too much trouble. I'm thinking the wedding, you know. Uh, that's where I think I'd prefer to be. And yet this says the day of death is better. Better to go to the house of mourning rather than a house of feasting. How could it be better to go to a funeral than a wedding? Uh, today and next week, I'm going to cover two topics in principle. Uh, one is the topic of judgment the judgment of God and the character of God tied up with that. And then next week, I want to talk about the God who parties, okay? Uh, Two sort of aspects of God as we look at these two chapters. And uh, let me say, one is more popular, I think, than the other uh, when we meet as God's people. I think there's no question about that. And yet I think, like with any tough topic, often you learn things that you're not expecting to learn from tough things. I was talking to someone just before the service who just said, oh, I'm going in for a fairly significant operation uh, in you know, a month's time or so. That's interesting, isn't it? When life is going well, uh, you can be cruising along. But when something dramatic happens to you, often it does cause you to stop and to think, doesn't it? And to be arrested in your, in your, your attitudes and thoughts. And I think it's a bit like that when we come today to this topic of the judgment of God. Not popular, but... Probably we'll learn some things as we look at it together. So I'm going to pray that's the case anyway. And 
that we'll, uh, we'll get into it. It's Luke 13 we're looking at. Handy to have it open in front of you, uh, or it's in the leaflet as you came in. There's, a, there's an outline that I gave you in case you get confused by what I'm saying. You'll be able to get back on track in due course, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful kindness towards us, and yet we know that you're not just a, a custard God that we get absorbed by that's just bland and nondescript. We know you have character and purpose. And we know as we consider the whole question of uh, your judgment, this is one that brings up well, all sorts of issues for us and brings into sharp contrast uh, your character and your purposes. Uh, so, Father, we pray you'll speak to our hearts and minds as we consider this together this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a couple of years ago and Sue and I were on holidays. We're on the south coast of New South Wales at a place called Tilba. Right. Probably not many of you have been there, but it's a really beautiful part of the countryside. We'd rented a little cabin. One night the owner or the manager of the cabin came, came over to see how things were going and we sat down and had a drink with him. And one thing led to another. I knew what he did. He didn't know what I did. I told him what I did. Uh, and he said, I don't get a church because it's full of hypocrites. Huh? And I thought, what happened to the customer is always right, you know? <laughs> Very, you know, there you go. Anyway, so uh, that was his sort of lead in line at, at this point. And I didn't think of the clever thing I should have said, which was, no, no, it's not full of hypocrites. We've always got plenty of room for one more, you know. But um, uh, mind you, that's, there's, there's a double edge to that, isn't there, you know. But you know, I, won't, I won't go there. Um, but is that not the sort of popular thought uh, in Australian culture? That when you announce you're a Christian, often people can think you're judgmental or you're hypocritical. And of course you go through the last couple of years with things like the Royal Commission. And there's some truth, obviously, in the issue of the hypocrisy that has riddled the church that we need to own up to. And uh, the nature of us thinking we're better than other people. When we get into Luke chapter 13... It tackles this whole question of the judgment of God, judgmentalism and hypocrisy. It picks up on those sorts of issues. What we need to first of all remember though is that Luke chapter 13 follows Luke 12. Right? Now I'm not thinking you're stupid, uh, but the, the issue is the context often in the Bible sets up the discussion that follows. So I want to take you to the end part of Luke chapter 12, uh, which I think sets up Luke 13 and the discussion that follows. I'll read from verse 54 in Luke 12. Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, it's, it's, it's one of those this-that arguments, if this, then that. So if this, you see clouds, it's going to rain. If this, south wind, it's going to be hot weather. If you're going to the magistrate, you don't have a strong case, settle on your way if you've got any brains, right? That's the way it goes. And it, it's a warning, right? It's, it's the warning. We're, 
particularly to the religious sort of people that were listening in. You might be religious. You might think that you're okay with God. But Jesus says, I want to tell you, you're not. You're a long way from God. And the judgment of God is coming. And when it does, you won't be on the right side of it. That's the point he's making. It follows that discussion. Then what he does in Luke 13 is he drives home the whole question of the judgment of God and how it works. So how does God judge today? Does he judge today? How does that work? Just a couple of years ago, I was in Darwin. I was visiting there. I had a morning off. So I went to the local museum. In that museum, uh, they have a significant exhibition that highlights the impact of Cyclone Tracy on Darwin. Uh, Some of you are not old to remember when that occurred. Uh, It was 1974, but it completely devastated that town. There were 65 people who were killed, and it hit on Christmas Eve and over into Christmas Day. One of the things uh, that was spoken about at that time, even in the popular press, was, was this the judgment of God? Particularly because of the timing, I suspect. And Darwin, particularly at that stage, had a bit of a notorious reputation uh, for immorality in different ways. And so the question was, is this God bringing down his hand upon this town? Luke 13 draws us into that sort of discussion. Chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we, we don't get many details here. We're not sure exactly what's going on. Uh, but the Galileans were Jews. And obviously they'd, they'd suffered or been killed at Pilate's hand. And so Jesus says, when someone raises this with him, do you think they suffered because they were worse sinners? than other Galileans. Is that what you think is going on here? And I remember Jesus knows what people think, right? He knows what's going on and that people are trying to set him up at this point. That's the discussion that's being happening. There's a bit under the surface here. Uh, Galileans were seen as inferior Jews, sort of, you know, half-caste, not-quite-there type Jews. And they weren't as good at keeping sort of the religious rules as, say, the Pharisaic Jews. There was just a bit of background there. But also, here's what's going on. Where's Jesus from? Nazareth. Who, what's Jesus? A Galilean. Huh? Jesus, do you hear about those Galilean Jews that suffered? Where are you from, Jesus? You get the sort of the tension that's trying to be raised by that. They're just trying to kick Jesus in the guts and give him a hard time. That's what's going on. Were these Galileans, says Jesus, were they worse sinners than other Galileans? He asked that question to the people who'd come before him. Now, I reckon the people who brought that question to him were thinking, yes, they were. That's why they suffered. And that was a pretty popular view in the day. But I reckon there were also a group there saying, no, I think every Galilean should suffer this way. <laughs> we hate them. You know. And there was that sort of, there's that sort of response that's going on. But Jesus, notice what he says, verse 3, no, you guys have got to completely back to front. No, but unless you repent, you'll perish. 
Jesus says, you are so far off the mark. He goes on, verse 4. What about those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they are more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now, we're talking about something that must have been a fairly recent but known disaster in Jerusalem. Remember now, what Jesus has done, he's been very clever here. He's moved from Galilean Jews to heartland, you can't get more kosher, dinky dye than us guys Jews, right? That, that's what's going on. He says, what about these guys? Yeah, you've talked about you know, the, the Galileans over here, but these are dinky guys. Were they just standing in the wrong place when the tower fell? That's what you think was happening. You know, why did these guys get killed? Were they more sinful than any other Jews? And then he's got them. Verse 5, I tell you, no. Then he repeats the line from verse 3. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, I think this inevitably raises a question that is so common. Even if it's not voiced, it's often the thing that's going on in people's minds and hearts. The first century, but I think in the 21st century as well. A suffering is suffering in this world and personal sin, are they connected? Does my sin somehow lead to me suffering in some way? How does that work? Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for three decades odd now, and that question is often the question that people are thinking when they get sick or when some disaster occurs to their family. Is this sort of payback from God in some way? In a general sense, I want to say the idea that suffering and sin are connected is a fair call. Let me show you why. I'll I'll read from Romans chapter 8. The creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. What the Bible consistently says is that this world generally is out of step with its maker. It's it's fractured in different ways. It doesn't work the way in which it should. And we're all sort of caught up in that in a general sense. It reminds us that this world is not always intended to be. There's a general sense in which rebellion against God leads to consequences in this world. But let me sharpen it up. Is particular suffering or disaster linked to specific sin? Particular suffering to particular sin. That is, let me get personal, when I suffer in some way, is it because I have sinned? I want to say the answer to that is yes and no and yes and no. All right. Now this is the, you may think this is preacher covering all his angles to protect himself. Yes and no. No, but let me, let me, so yes, no, yes and no. That is, are sin and suffering connected? Yes. Uh, I shoot up heroin, overdose, I die. Fair chance my failure to honour God properly at this point has led to my death. Yeah, is there a direct connection between those two things? None of us are puzzled by that. Uh, No, they're not connected. When a baby is born and addicted to heroin because 
uh, this child's mother was addicted to heroin. This is not for anything this child has done. There is no connection at all at this point for that individual before God. And then I want to say yes and no. That is, it it can actually be both. Um, I can, because of my failure to treat God properly, be disciplined by God for my good. That is, there may be a consequence, but it actually may be a positive hand of God consequence, even in the midst of that sort of situation. I guess by covering all those options, what I want to say is be really careful. Um, We need to, as God's people, be extraordinarily careful. Because I've seen believers uh, and, and others actually pastorally slaughtered because of a misapplication of this sort of idea. You know, the reason you are sick and dying with cancer is because you have unconfessed sin. You confess it, you'll be right, you'll be healed. Right? That is just horrible, purely to be quite honest. It's a terrible misapplication, I think, of the word of God. And you cannot find it here. It, a slight digression, but let me come back now here to Luke 13, because... I think when Jesus is talking about these issues, he actually has quite a different focus in mind. It's, it's reasonable for that, that, that issue to be evoked in our thinking, and I think it was for the listeners of Jesus as well. But really, Jesus' focus is different. I want, to know, I want you to notice what Jesus does and does not say, what he does and does not say. Notice he doesn't say about the people who suffer. He doesn't say, no, they didn't suffer because they sinned. God isn't like that. God loves everybody. Jesus did not say that at this point. Or he didn't say this. You know that tower that fell on those people? Just a fluke, one of those things. God had nothing to do with it. He doesn't say that either. But I want you to notice what Jesus does say at this point. He says they don't suffer because they were worse sinners. They don't suffer because they were worse sinners. Notice he doesn't say that they don't deserve to be judged. Do you know why he doesn't say that? Because he is saying everyone deserves to be judged. That's actually what he is saying. Everyone is sinful. Everyone deserves the judgment of God. The Galileans, the Jerusalemites, me and you. We all deserve that. Judged by God because all of us are sinners. All of us don't treat God the way he deserves. That is the reality. Now, does that mean we're all as sinful as each other? You know, we could over morning tea have a bit of a competition, you know, sort of, you know, so sort of just a bit of a comparison thing, see how we're going, you know. And I don't think it's saying that either. You know, if I could erect a monitor around the back door as you came in, that measured sin, you know, that as, as you came in that back door and sort of got a register, you know, naught to 100 on the past week, you know, as you came in and... Different people come through, Kez comes through, hardly registers a bleep, you know. Oh, godly woman she is, you know. Andrew Severin comes in, woo! 
you know. And he didn't say it's because of the guy he's got to work with, you know, stresses him out completely. It's me if you don't understand. But, you know, the, you know if the reality is all of us would find ourselves scoring differently on that, that reality. There's no question about it. We don't, we don't all sin the same amount. But what I want to say is that the, the consequence of sin is exactly the same for all of us whether you sin to some degree, a greater degree, or majorly, the outcomes are exactly the same. It's a bit like when a hugely wealthy business person who's run up billions of dollars of debts uh, has a bad business deal that goes bad and they get thrown into bankruptcy. Now, they might have had billions of dollars of debts. Let's say I run up a debt of, you know, $223,000, $223,000, which is about six times my net worth, you know, and, uh, and for some reason go bad on this debt and get bankrupted. Now, let me say there is a difference between billions of dollars and $262,000. I get that. I can count, you know, to some degree. Uh, but the consequence is the same. Default means both get made bankrupt, the outcome is exactly the same result. In a sense, before God, we're all in the same boat. We all uh, have a broken relationship with God because of our sin, and that needs to be mended. Sometimes we can forget it. I caught up with a guy a while ago who, when we sat down, he'd just become a Christian in his 40s. And he said to me, I, I generally am doing okay until I go to church. And then I feel really bad. And at that point, I was feeling really bad because I'm often preaching. You know? <laughs> so I thought it's probably me you know, uh, that's caused this problem. He said, so I said, why do you feel really bad? Hoping it wasn't me. You know? uh, and he said, I feel really bad because when I get to church, I'm surrounded by all these people who are such nice, good living people. And it just reminds me of what a failure I've been and still am in terms of my life. Now, I just explained to him that you look good on the outside <laughs> and that comes with practice, you know, uh, over time. Uh, but I, I just explained to him the reality was we all, we all, don't get there. We, we all fall short of God. We're all people who've not treated him properly. And some of us have done it in more outrageously public ways, some in more private sort of ways, but that is just who we are in terms of where we stand before God. All sinners who need mercy, all debtors who can't clear the debt, all, by nature, deserve the judgment of God. So here's the the question. How do you avoid judgment? That's an important question to get the answer to. Find people who are more sinful than you. I know a few Galilean Jews, you know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's the strategy these guys employed. Or maybe try harder. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't talk about any of those. Notice what he says, verse 3. Unless you repent, you'll perish. Verse 5. Unless you repent, you'll perish. Repentance. 
what's it mean? I looked up my dictionary and it says uh, things like feel remorse, be sorry about something, to show penitence. Often I think this is the confusion lots of people have. They think repentance is all tied up with feelings. You know? And I'm not thinking it won't have consequences for feelings, but that's not at the heart of repentance. The Bible and repentance is saying we need to agree with God that we are dis- we're sinners, we deserve judgment. That's the reality. We need to call on God for mercy and we need to turn away from sin and live for God. That's the nature of repentance. And what Jesus does is he rams home this message with this story of the fig tree, verses 6 to 9. This is like his sermon illustration. Uh, the fig tree that doesn't bear any fruit for three years, the landlord says, come on, let's get rid of this tree. It's doing no good at all. And the t- tenant farmer who says, no, 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 hold off. Give me another year. Let's see if it can come good. Okay. And if it doesn't, then we'll chop it down. Uh, that's, that's the nature of the story. And it's a clear message in this context. Uh, Jesus is saying the day of judgment is coming. And he says, I have entered in this world in this last year. I've turned up at the end of the age. I've been sent by God to warn people and to call upon people to repent and to be forgiven. And if you ignore the Son of God, if you ignore me, then listen to the warning. Judgment is coming. It will certainly follow my presence here among you. That's the message that Jesus brings. So let me try and wrap this up uh, by thinking through a few, few implications that come out of what Jesus is saying here. The question I've got for you is, can you read this sign? You know, when someone's coming in the hills, uh, you know if people take it seriously because they clear the undergrowth around their house, they clear out the gutters because it's bushfire season. Right? The, the sign, take action. There's that sort of thing. Luke 13, Jesus is saying, here I am, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. In fact, he's been on this journey to Jerusalem from Luke chapter 9 where he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's made it clear he will suffer on a cross, he will die, he will rise again from the dead. The judgment of God and the salvation of God all rolled into that climactic event as sort of a powerful reality and illustration rolled into one. I will die on the cross, says Jesus, for the sin of the world. Yours, mine, everybody's. Not Jesus didn't say that, I'm saying that. Sin of the world, that's what Jesus dies for. And so the question I have is, do you get that? Do you get it? Does that come home? So have you accepted and come to terms with God's judgment? Uh, I'd much prefer to go to a wedding than a funeral. And I'd much prefer to preach on other passages of the Bible and passages that talk about judgment. I did choose this, but do you know what I mean? Uh, That is the reality. It's not my favourite topic. But I think it's here for a reason, and so we don't bury our head in the sand and think it's not real. And we take it into account. Friends, the day is coming when you, me, everyone you've ever known uh, will come before God on that day of judgment. It's a sobering thought. 
Now, can I ask you, what do you plan to say? What, what do you think is a good line to open with on that occasion? Uh, I'm a good friend of Andrew Severin. He's a much worse sinner than I am. Right? Now, I'm only joking. I'm only saying it because I really know Andrew well. But uh, do, do you know what I mean? Like, I know other people who are more sinful than me. Do you think that'll cut it? I went to church from time to time. Well, I reckon the most common one is this. Uh, I've tried to live a pretty good life. Friends, let me say all those answers uh, reek of, of hypocrisy. Extraordinary hypocrisy. Because people in the end are pretending to be something they're not if they hold to those views. Imagine saying to the Holy Lord of heaven and earth, you know, I think I've lived a pretty good life. What do you think? I don't think it's going to hold up. I know people who did worse than me. Mm, wrong. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? It's just not going to work. I didn't do too badly. Really? By comparison with the Holy God? It's hypocrisy to think we're good enough for God. It's extraordinary hypocrisy to think we're good enough to get into heaven without Jesus. You know, it just is. The only way you can be right with God to face up to God is by repenting. It's to accept the reality that we do actually deserve judgment and to trust in God's generosity through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now, if you haven't done that, I'm not talking about whether you're constantly turning away from sin, as we all should be. But if you haven't come to that point where you realise the reality of where you stand before God and your need to repent to be in relationship with him, can I urge you to take this message very seriously? I did it when I was about 20 years of age. Uh, it was actually a horrible reality. I'd just been doing this double take on life to, to make myself feel okay about it and what I'd done. And then I was confronted with the reality of my lack of holiness before the holy God and the need to repent. You can do that with your 8, 20, 80, doesn't matter. But it's important each one of us have come to that point. But let me for a few moments just talk to those of us who would say they have repented and are living in the light of that judgment. I think there's a, there's a sharp edge for those of us who think we're okay with God. And that's really where the focus of this story is. The fig tree. It rang bells for the Jews because in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel were often compared to a fig tree. A tree that God had tended, loved, nurtured, fed, watered, all that sort of thing. And yet a tree that never seemed to produce any fruit. A ratbag nation of people that didn't turn. And so if we're followers of the Lord Jesus we'll be realising that this story is for us. And the question being asked is, how's it going? In the end, what is this, tr this truth about being right with God by his mercy and grace? How does it produce outcomes in your life? There are all sorts of ways in which you can follow this through. Back in Luke chapter 12, 
there's a whole series of illustrations about the way in which the reality of Jesus' presence convicts and changes people's lives as they think about the way they treat people, as they think about the way they deal with money, as they think about what they're anxious about in this world. Lots of different applications. But let me just focus on one other thing just before I finish. It seems to me if, if people who put their trust in Jesus know about the reality of the coming judgment, it will sharpen them particularly in one area. William Booth uh, was the founder of the Salvation Army and he uh, penned an article uh, or a piece that was called A Vision for the Lost. This is the way his story went. He had this vision of this island in the middle of nowhere, sort of a crag that emerges from a really rough ocean. And he said, in this picture, uh, the, the storm was raging around this island and there were boats uh, crashing on the rocks and uh, people in the ocean drowning. There were people on this island who at some stage had been like those people who were in the water, uh, crashed, were drowning, struggling, and needed, needed rescuing. So some on the island had gone through that same experience and then thousands upon thousands out in the water just surrounding this island while the storm raged and they were drowning. This is what he says. He said, what puzzled me most was the fact that although all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. The memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And he goes on and talks about the... Um, some who are working urgently to rescue people while there's an indifference from those who'd actually experienced the same sort of thing. You see, once, once you understand um, the way in which you've escaped the wrath of God through his mercy and grace, once that reality comes home to you, then the desperate urgency of the people who haven't experienced it yet crowding upon you. Now that can be crippling and you can operate out of guilt and all sorts of inappropriate motivations. But I think for God's people, once we perceive and maintain the reality of that truth, it just keeps giving us an urgency, a gentle love and compassion and desire to see those we, we love and care for, but we haven't turned to Jesus, those we work with, those we live beside, that they might experience this grace and mercy and turn and believe. So can I ask you this morning, how does the, the reality, the absolute certainty of this coming judgment, where does it find its resting place? In your life? What's it doing in terms of producing outcomes as you think about life in this world? Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we don't always like reading passages like this or hearing about the reality of judgment. And yet, Father, without it... Um, 
we know we regard salvation as being way too cheap and, and meaningless really in the end and we get it wrong in terms of the way we view ourselves. And Father, I pray for any who are here today who have not repented and believed that you will bring about that conviction and that need to grasp hold of your mercy and grace. And Father, I just pray for those of us who have uh, taken on board this truth that you'll keep allowing it to um, stir up our minds and hearts so that we might live with purpose, clarity, compassion, mercy, grace as we live in a world that you've created among people you've created for a relationship with yourself. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll stir us up by your word and spirit so we might live for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.